Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. What a great testimony. You can't, you just can't uh, watch that and hear it without smiling. And it's, a, it's just a joy as a congregation to see our sister in Christ to enter the water of baptisms today. She did so in the first service. And uh, we just rejoice that, that now we can pray for her. And now we know that, that uh, uh, you know, her relationship with Jesus and his goodness in her life. This is wonderful to hear this testimony. It's wonderful to get to see sing together in a few moments. We'll have communion. The sermon this morning will be kind of interspersed with a little more singing and a little bit more communion. This morning is the last sermon from the book of James, which raises the question, what am I going to do next? And the deal is, you are very welcome to give me suggestions. I will ignore them like I always do, and it'll just, it'll work out just great. But this morning, uh, I've got five truths about living faith from the book of James. Essentially, this sermon is a a pastor who loves you and knows you. And through the last year, I've really come to love and know the book of James. And from the whole book, I just picked out these five truths that I think this congregation, that you all, would be well served to hear today and to keep in your heart and in your mind for the days ahead. So we've got five truths for living faith. The first truth is this. Some of the most beautiful elements of Christian character can only blossom through trouble and trial. You know, that's true. Some of the most beautiful elements of Christian character can only blossom through trouble and trial. James says in James chapter one, beginning in verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then he says in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Some of the most beautiful elements of Christian character can only blossom through trial and trouble. You know, we know this is true even from nature. On the farm or if you're a, a, you just have chickens as a hobbyist, you see those eggs and that little, that little beak begins to poke through the shell. And those little wings start to push against that shell. And the wise farmer will say to his little helpers, hey, don't touch that egg and crack it open further because that would actually harm that little bird. That little neck and those little wings, they need that trouble and that resistance to grow. We don't just see it in nature. We see it in the supernatural conversion of a sinner. Look at that beautiful testimony that Grace shared this morning. If you you heard it, she said that it was when her uncle was dying, a hard death, brain cancer, that she was converted and came to Christ. I've heard many testimonies in the waters of baptism. I I hope you have too. And I have really yet to hear one where it's like, um, 
when everything in my life was perfect, that's when I came to Jesus. It just doesn't happen that way. And as in conversion, so in conformity to Christ, as in conversion to Christ, so in conformity to Christ, or as in salvation, so in sanctification. Your testimony as those who are already believers. Is it your statement this morning that the times when I was most pushed forward in my spiritual life were all of the times when everything was going exactly like I wanted it to and everything was so easy and comfortable that I just napped all day. That's not when we grow. The most beautiful elements of Christian character can only blossom through trouble and trial. That's why he says in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Your version of the Bible that you write out of your own emotion translates that verse this way. Blessed is the man or woman who doesn't have any trials. God's version of the Bible says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. You know, when we are in trial, most of us spend most of our time trying to wriggle out from under the trial. Pain is not a natural good. And if there are ways that we can alleviate the suffering and the pain, we should utilize those, those God-ordained means. And yet, what if we didn't spend all of our strength trying to squirt out from under the trial? And what if we spent our strength saying, Lord, you have said, blessed is the one who is steadfast. Lord, help me to apply my strength to the steadfastness of my faith. What if when we encountered a trial, instead of saying, why me? And just grasping around for escape. What if we just answered that question, why me? Because there is an answer here in James. In James chapter one, verse four, it says that through the trials, what is imperfect and incomplete in you can be made perfect and complete like Christ. So what if you went ahead and got the answer? The answer to why me is perhaps this trial is in your life so that you can become more like Jesus. And perhaps this specific trial is in your life, perhaps because of the specific un-Jesus-like ways that this trial will sandpaper out of your life. And what if you applied your prayer and your passion to that? You see, most of us spend all of our, all of our effort trying to get the weight off. But what if we took this blessing of steadfastness and, and we spent our effort saying, Lord, give me muscles to bear up under this trial. And Lord, use this trial to make me who you want me to be. For I know that the testing of my faith will produce steadfastness. And I know that that steadfastness through the trial will have its full effect so that I will become more perfect and more complete and more like Jesus Christ. We should pray that way and spend our energies that way because we know that some of the most beautiful elements of Christian character can only blossom through trouble and trial. Well, let me give you a second truth about living faith before we sing a little more. And the second truth is about doubt. It's from verses five through eight. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. The second truth about living faith is this. Doubt 
corrodes and cannot be contained. It's like a universal acid. Doubt corrodes and cannot be contained. Unbelief harms everything it touches. And unbelief makes you unstable in all of your ways. Doubt corrodes and cannot be contained. Unbelief harms everything it touches and makes you unstable in all your ways. Verse 8, he's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. You know, the most important theme in James is his concern that when you say you have faith, you actually have faith. The most important thing in James is that your talk is matched by your walk, that you have this integrity. You don't say one thing and do another. Integrity in action. That's what he's talking about. This spiritual wholeness. This spiritual wholeness or integrity. God is one. The godly man, the godly woman, has a single heart of integrity. Verse 17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. God is one and unchanging. Therefore, back to what he says in verses five through eight, the godly person isn't always changing like the waves of the sea. They have this integrity, this reliability. They say that the most important thing about God in the Hebrew scriptures is the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter six, where it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Deuteronomy six, verse four, in the Shema says the most important thing about God is that God is one. And then Deuteronomy six, verse five, says then the most important thing about the woman of God or the man of God is that they have one heart to love God, one strength to obey God, one will to obey God. They're not divided. James calls it here in uh, chapter one, verse eight, to be double-minded. The, the Greek is literally die, which means two, sukos, soul, to have two souls within you warring against each other. To doubt God is to be two-souled, to be unreliable like a wave. But God wants us to be in a place where all of our desires and our actions, our intentions, our motivations, and the fruition of them in our speech and conduct has integrity. He says, pray without doubt, not like a wave tossed here and there. Why is doubt so dangerous? Because I want you to think of doubt not so much as mental indecision. Think of doubt as moral infidelity. We're not doubting a scientific equation. This is the Christian life we're talking about, which is that Jesus so loved us that he let his body be pierced for us. He shed his blood for us. And to doubt Jesus is to look at the one who gave his life for you and to say, I'm, that's not enough for me. I'm not loyal to you. Doubt is a lack of loyalty to Jesus. It's not so much an innocent question as much as it's an unwillingness to trust that Jesus is who he says he is. What does James mean here, really? He's not saying that your faith can be perfect. He's not saying that you don't struggle. But what he's getting at is that God wants a basic level of integrity. What you say is matched by what you intend to really do. 
a basic level of integrity, a basic level of loyalty and love where you're not committing what he says in chapter four, spiritual adultery. Friendship with the world is adultery against God. This single-hearted loyalty to Jesus, that's what we're talking about. So if doubt really is that dangerous, church, can I talk to you about how to kill your doubts? Someone here who is, would say, I've been really struggling with doubt lately. As a pastor, I, I counsel people who are battling doubt often. And you know, I have probably three or five books on my shelf in, where I counsel that are like uh, encyclopedias of all the archaeological evidence for the veracity of the, of the New Testament events and the manuscripts of Scripture. And in all my years of counseling people who doubt, I've I've never really counseled someone and the right article out of the right encyclopedia nailed it for them. Because it's not a matter merely of settling intellectual questions. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of loyalty. So my counsel to you, if you're struggling with doubt, is this. Love God with all your heart and hate the doubt that leads you away from God. My counsel to you, if you're struggling with doubt, is simply this, and I mean it. Work on doubting your doubts. Why do your doubts get the upper hand in your affection and in your imagination and in your mental capacity? Doubt your doubts and trust God. Do everything you can to begin doubting your doubts. If your doubts are fed by a stream of music or entertainment that makes you doubt God's wisdom, turn off that stream today, not tomorrow, today. If your doubts are fed by a relationship with someone who mocks God or does not honor God and that is leading you away from God, cut off that relationship, not tomorrow, today. Doubt your doubts, kill your doubts, and do everything that you can to listen to God and to love God. Never miss church. The worst thing for a doubter is to start going half in and half out to, to Bible study and, and ABF and church. Be here. Listen. And be, be engaged in those relationships with others. So if those are our first two points, I guess the first point is don't fear trials. Don't fear trials and troubles. Because trials and troubles will help you. They will help make you more like Jesus. And I guess the second point, church, is if you want to fear something, fear doubt, fear unbelief, fear disloyalty to Jesus, the Savior, who gave his life for you. And, and realize that distrust and unbelief will distance you from Jesus, and you don't want that. You want to be close to Jesus. You want to honor him with a real and a living faith. And we have an opportunity now to sing to Jesus, to, to express our trust to him in our praises. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, as we begin to open your word, as we hear the good news of this testimony from Grace Hanel, and now as we have opportunity to praise you, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, would you inhabit our hearts, enabling us to trust you with our life, to have a steadfast and an enduring faith, would you even use the praises of your saints to silence our doubt 
and to build our faith. Jesus, that you might be glorified in this moment, in this congregation. Amen. It's wonderful we get to sing God's praises. God strengthens our faith by the the, uh, testimony we heard uh, from our sister who was baptized and from singing his praises. We're going to remember the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus in communion. Uh, We we place it at the door on your way in. So if you picked one up and you've got it, you can be seated. If you need to run back and get one, that's fine. Take a moment to do that. You can be seated and we'll look together at uh, James chapter 2 and chapter 3. Our third principle about living faith that we want to keep with us as we walk away from the book of James, we want to keep with us the third truth that um, I think God wants us to keep in our hearts is this truth about faith. The truth is this, faith can be dead or living. So make sure that your faith shows up in real life. Very simple, very straightforward as James makes it. Faith can be dead or living. So make sure that your faith shows up in real life. James gets to this at the heart of chapter two when he asks this question in verse 14, what good is it? What good is faith if it's dead? What good is it, he says. James chapter two, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if somebody says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, go in peace, be warm and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. If you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. James says faith can be dead or living. And James gives an illustration that is as unmissable as it is undeniable. It is the illustration James gives is so blunt. Here's a person, he says, it's a brother or a sister, verse 15, who's poorly clothed, that is they're cold and they don't have a jacket and they they don't have enough to eat. And here's this poor sister who doesn't have a jacket and she's cold. And what you do is you rise up and speak and you say, it is so important to me that everyone has a warm jacket in the wintertime. That's a, that's a personal value of mine and it's just so important. And then you walk away and you leave this sister shivering in the cold. Or it's a brother who is hungry. He hasn't had anything to eat in two days and he's got no money. And so you speak or you go onto Facebook and you say, it's so important that we share with the poor and it's so wonderful to feed everyone and you don't do anything to give a meal to this hungry brother. There's no action to it. There's no validity to it. So he says, your words are dead. He says the same thing about faith. So we could summarize it like this. As frank as James is, the poor person will not thank you for your good sounding words 
if they are still cold and hungry when you're done talking. God will not thank you for your good sounding words about faith if you don't actually listen to God and do what he says. God's not gonna thank you for your pious sounding words if you don't listen to God and do what he says. Just like the poor person is not gonna be thankful by how good and important it is to you that everybody's fed, but you don't do anything. Faith can be dead or living, so you better make sure that your faith shows up in real life. Now, we put James in its setting in the New Testament, and we know, we gotta know about the gospel, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, as not as a result of works. It's not a matter of faith plus our obedient works equals we're saved. It's not adding works to faith. The issue James is saying is what is living faith, what is real saving faith, and what is dead faith? And that's the difference. Just saying something is as dead as just saying, I wish everybody had food. So faith that is living is not just a bare expression from the mouth. Faith that is living is that, that whole integrity of the life, the heart, the, the, the mind, the hands, the feet. Words and wishes aren't enough. They need to be expressed in concrete commitments to hear the word of God and do what God says, to, to have loyalty to God, like we said about doubt. It's not just checking off a, a, an exam correctly. It's a loyalty to God. The Bible talks about faith and there are two genuine dangers about faith. The first danger is that you can have real faith in the wrong object. Doesn't the Bible say that? Some people trust in idols. The Bible says, do not put your trust in princes or nations. You can have real faith in the wrong object. The Bible actually says in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, that you can have faith in your own understanding. And that's the wrong object. The first danger is that you would place your faith in the wrong object. But the second danger would be that you would know about the right object of faith, that is Jesus Christ, but you wouldn't place real living faith in him. In John's gospel, I think it, the first time it happens is in John chapter two. I think it happens two or three or four more times. It happens again in John chapter eight. The text of John's gospel actually says that Jesus looked at those who believed in him and Jesus said to them, you are still of your father, the devil. See, they had a quote unquote faith in the right object in Jesus Christ, but that faith was dead faith. It wasn't saving faith. It wasn't living faith. These are the two dangers. You can place faith in the wrong object or you can know about the right object, that is Jesus, but not have real faith in him. And you know, this, is, this comes up in the instructions for communion that Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says that remembering the body and blood of Jesus, it belongs to those who have, his phrase is to examine yourselves and see that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Not that you never fail, not that you never doubt, 
Not that you never sin. But when you doubt, oh, you want to trust Jesus. When you sin, oh, you want to confess that and turn from it. Because Jesus is altogether lovely and desirable for you. That's true in living faith. And you know, that's why it says in 1 Corinthians 11, let a man examine himself and not take in an unworthy manner. Because we are remembering the body and the blood of Jesus. We believe that Jesus took on flesh. If you have that communion uh, element, you just peel off the top and you get the soft wafer that's in there. You know, that represents the body of Jesus. That in order to save us, the eternal son of God, the second member of the eternal triune God, he took on flesh to come down here and save us. He says, this is my body broken for you. This is my body given for you. You know, what we confess when we take communion is that Jesus did, did not remain in heaven. Jesus Christ took on flesh and he descended from heaven into the waters of the virgin's womb and he was born like us, yet without sin. And then when he began his ministry, he descended into the waters of the Jordan River in order that fulfilling all righteousness, he might be baptized as our savior, as our representative. Oh, and then they lifted him up on a spike, crucifying him. And the apostle Peter says that upon the moment of his death, Jesus descended as it were, to the waters below the earth to proclaim to the captive souls his victory over sin and death. And then rising from the grave, he has, he has accomplished for us our salvation. This is what we remember. So remember that Jesus took on a body in order to die in your place. As the Christian church, we confess that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Remembering Jesus Christ, take the bread. Lord Jesus, we remember as of first importance that you died for our sins according to the scriptures, that you were buried according to the scriptures, and that you rose again the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so Lord Jesus, we remember and we rejoice that you and you alone are our savior. And at the supper, after giving them the bread, Jesus lifted up the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is the new covenant that I will remember your sins no more. This cup is the new covenant that when I shed my blood, I will take from you a heart of stone that is incapable of obedience and I will give to you a heart of flesh, a living heart that you might love the Lord your God and listen to his voice and obey him. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. He says, remember that I shed my blood to forgive your trespasses. I shed my blood to make you a new creation. Church, remembering that, let's take the cup together.
Lord Jesus, we bless your name that you shed your blood for us. Lord Jesus, we bless your name that what we could not do, you accomplished for us. And our joy is to be your saved ones, your redeemed ones, your washed clean ones. And we would walk in the light with true faith in you. Lord Jesus, strengthen your church by your body, by your blood, through faith in you. Amen. We remember the Lord Jesus. And for our third point, we talked about real faith. For our fourth truth out of the book of James, let's talk about real relationships. You know, the book of James is a book about relationships because Jesus is in us. Now, our relationships with, our relationships with each other show the reality of Jesus. James hits on relationships in every chapter of his epistle. In chapter one, verse 27, James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You know, I met with somebody this week who adopted uh, an orphan into their household. What a, what a Christ-like thing to do. James says here, living faith is, are you the kind of person who goes to Ridgewood Care Facility just to give your personal affection and love and attention to a widow in there who doesn't have anybody to love her anymore? He says the reality of your relationship with Jesus is shown in your relationships with widows and orphans. He talks about relationships in chapter two when he says in verse eight, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. He says that it's a transgression and a sin to have like these, these great graded relationships where you're prejudiced or partial against certain people for any reason. He says you can't show that kind of partiality and call yourself a genuine believer. You have to have these open relationships, these loving relationships. And I would sum up this point, point number four, you could, you could mark it down like this. Relationships are where living faith shows in godly speech and gracious conflict resolution. Relationships are where living faith shows in godly speech and gracious conflict resolution. Those two ways, because James is all about godly speech. James chapter three is all about the tongue and godly speech. And then James is very big on gracious conflict resolution. Listen to how he says it in 3.13 through 18. How about settling conflicts like this? 3.13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambitions in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, 
And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Relationships are where living faith shows in godly speech and gracious conflict resolution. In a healthy church, conflicts are resolved by meekness, gentleness, and graciousness. In an unhealthy church, conflict creates bitterness and animosity and hatred. In a healthy church, ungodly speech is silenced and stopped. In an unhealthy church, ungodly speech rules the day and runs the place. You know this, don't you? In a healthy church, gossip is stopped. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. In a healthy church, gossip is stopped. But in an unhealthy church, gossip is encouraged and rewarded. In a healthy church, spiritual conversations happen everywhere all the time. In an unhealthy church, spiritual conversations are stopped. I love these spiritual conversations. We have a, we have a congregational meeting tonight and we're putting on a dinner. I think Infusinos is catering it. And we have a dinner, well, honestly, to bribe you into coming to the congregational meeting, but really because fellowship around those tables, we want, the, we want these spiritual conversations to happen. I was at a graduation party uh, yesterday it, at which party we got to see that Rob and Nikki, Drectennis's dog, is more of a rat than a dog, but that's a little bit beside the point. At that graduation party, you know, we, we laughed and we made fun of each other and, and talked about this and that, but also there were spiritual conversations there where we said, where we said how can I pray for you? Are you really in the word or not? This unsaved family member, what's happening with them? And how can we help them? I love, I, I love those conversations where we can really talk about what's happening. And that's the sanctified use of our speech. You know, if I could just tell you one thing about relationships to take with you to strengthen your relationships, it's this. The most important relationship in all of your relationships is your relationship with God. The, the most influential relationship in all of your relationships is your relationship with God. Think of the vertical and the horizontal. Think of a tree above the ground and under the ground. So what's above the ground on the tree is all the branches and the leaves. And above the ground is, all, is your relationships with everybody else. So above the ground is where the wind blows. And that person gossiped about me. And that person's bitter at me. And that person did something mean. And, and that wind blows. But look at what's under the ground. That's your relationship with God. And if you have shallow roots in your relationship with God, when you go sideways with somebody above in the wind, that will just like knock you all the way over and turn you into a tumbleweed. And you might never recover from that. But if you have deep roots in God, then even if the not yet fully sanctified sinners in your church do and say something that bends you the wrong way, it's not going to wreck your faith. Your relationship with God is the most important relationship in all of your relationships. 
so that people's opinions of you and reactions to you and the things they say about you don't win the day because you have deep roots in God. That's where the wisdom from above, the meekness, the, the, the confidence in God. Meekness is confidence in God that God will win the battles. You know, if the, if the most important thing to me is what he or she is saying about me around there, I'm gonna be a deeply insecure person. But if my roots are deep and the most important thing about me is what God has said about me and he has said that I'm his child and I'm forgiven, then I can look to him and I can make it through whatever else happens. So real faith shows in real relationships. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at what your word says here about godly relationships, would you use your word and the meekness of wisdom to heal relationships that need to be reconciled and restored? And would you give us great confidence in your love for us and then a sweetening and a deepening ability to share that love one with another in relationships? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God speaks to us so faithfully and so lovingly in his word. And we speak to God in prayer. Our fifth and final truth about living faith is a truth about prayer. James says in James chapter five, verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. He says you can call the elders of the church to pray for you. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. He says in verse 16 to confess your sins to one another and to pray for one another. He says the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Our fifth and final point is about prayer. And don't let the simplicity of it uh, rob you of seeing the significance of it. And the point is this, any time is the right time to pray. And every thing is one more thing to bring to God in prayer. Anytime is the right time to pray and everything is one more thing to bring to God in prayer. James 5.13 says the suffering things, the bad things, the sad things, we bring to God in prayerful supplication. And James 5.13 says the good things, the sweet things, the desirable things, we bring to God in prayerful praise and thanksgiving. Everything is one more thing to bring to God in prayer. James knew about prayer. They called him camel knees. Ancient church historian Eusebius, whose writings we have, quotes a more ancient historian who was a contemporary of James and says that the church in Jerusalem gave James the nickname camel knees because his the skin on his knees was calloused and worn from the time that he spent on his knees praying to God for the church that he loved so much. James 5.13 sounds simple, but it is a profoundly uh, spiritually altering practice to bring everything to God in prayer. When something bad happens, bring it to God in prayer. When something good happens, bring it to God in prayer. So let's do a sort of, you can choose your answer to this poll question. Here's the question. When something bad happens, what do you do? Usually. When something bad happens, what do you do? First, 
You take it out on the nearest undeserving dog. You just kick that thing in the rib cage. Not a good thing to do. Or worse, you take it out on the nearest checker at the grocery store. It ain't her fault you're having a bad day, but you sure take it out on her. It's an awful thing to do. When something bad happens, what do you do? Some of you, you complain about it in the whiniest possible way. That's an unattractive and ungodly way to live. When something bad happens, what do you do? And some of you, you, you almost, you almost like a hard candy. You just keep, you just keep kind of rolling it around in self-pity. Some of you have not found a cool swimming pool that will ever be more comfortable than your pool of self-pity that you just do laps in. And for some reason, just thinking about how bad you have it just makes you feel superior to what's happening in your life. When something bad happens, you go to self-pity, you go to anger. Some of you, you know, fight or flight. Some of you, that fight is the deal. When something bad happens, you just start thrashing violently about it. And even if it is logically pointed out to you that all of your efforts aren't doing any good, you don't care because you just feel good to be punching something. This verse says, by implication, that every one of those responses to bad things happening is a sin. But this verse gives you the one response that's not a sin that will help you. And that is, take it to God in prayer. Anytime is the right time to pray. And every bad thing that happens is one more thing to bring to God in prayer. Pray about it when you suffer. That's how James began the letter. Verse two, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. And the one thing you should do is pray for steadfastness, pray for wisdom and trust, he says in verse five, that God is generous and he gives generously to those who ask for him. That's how he began the letter and that's how he ends the letter. But what about when good things happen? Same kind of poll question. You can fill it in. What do you do when good things happen? Well, I know what I do. I say, this good thing happened to me? That must mean that I am all that plus a side of fries. And you just get proud and puffed up. Or maybe when something good happens, you take that good thing and then you just sort of protect it and you start saying, my precious good thing. No one can take away my good thing. And you just get so, so protective of it that you turn into a monster. You really think God would bless you so that you could become more selfish? What this text says is that when a good thing happens to you, the one right thing to do is to give praise and thanks to God for that good thing. You just practice his presence in constant praise and thanksgiving for any good thing that happens. Think of thanksgiving. The, the Christian church, we undersell the importance of thanksgiving. Think of Romans 1. Our world, you know, pride month, our world is phenomenally, pervertedly, you know, misunderstanding what the Bible teaches about human sexuality. 
and, and homosexuality and other sexual sins are detailed in Romans 1. But if you look, if you look at what Romans 1 says about it, what it's, the, the core is Romans 1 verse 21, where it says, they did not know God and they refused to give God thanks. Therefore, they're given over into all these perversions. You see, thanksgiving, thanksgiving is, is our safety and, and our sanity. In the area of human sexuality, if I am giving thanks to God for the body that he created and gave me, then there's no way I give thanks to God and use that body for any form of, of sexual immorality. You see, when we give thanks to God, we give thanks to God and then we, we use what God has given to us lawfully and with Christian integrity and morally according to the law of God because we give thanks to God for it. But when we receive a gift and we don't give God thanks for it, then, then we're just gone in a spiral of self-regarding depravity. Giving thanks is so important. And that's why he says, anytime you suffer, just pray to God about it. And anytime something that you're thankful for happens, sing praise to God about it. In this will be your integrity and your security for all the gifts that God gives. And so one gift that he gives us is our trials and troubles. And we can consider that joy because we know that they, they will blossom and grow in us Christ-likeness. The gift that God gives us, the greatest gift, is that God is one and that we would have spiritual integrity to be one just as God is. And then the gift that he gives us is genuine faith, living faith. And the gift that he gives us is our relationships and, and our real faith shows in those relationships so that we become people who in all things can pray and really look to Jesus. That's what it's all about, is looking to Jesus in all things. We've chosen as our closing song a song where we look to Jesus, our greatest friend. We don't have to carry any burdens on our own. We can cast all our burdens on Jesus. So we would, we would invite you all to stand and sing with us of what a good friend we have in Jesus, our Lord and Savior. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.